Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Second City is very well known for alums from, you know, the Tina Fays and Stephen Colbert's and Steve Carell's to uh, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, uh, Martin Short. You know, the list goes on and on and on. They're literally, you know, dozens if not hundreds of high profile people have gone on to individual stardom and fame and um, what's interesting about it is they learned everything that they learned in the context of an ensemble so i love that model too that you can um, that you can commit to an ensemble and commit to those around you yet still achieve individual accolades and individual focus and i think Often in business, it's seen as a zero-sum game. If, if I, if I, you know, go in for the team, I'm risking my own individual stardom or my own individual opportunity. And and I think our place is such a perfect example of how you can blend both. And if you really truly commit to the ensemble, the best ensemble players can go on to amazing things. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Tom, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking time to join us. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks. Yeah. So, Tom, you know, I came across you by way uh, of your new book, Yes And. Uh, and when I, I saw the cover, I thought, who are these people? And then I went and looked on the back of it and I thought, oh, my God, these are the guys who come from probably the world's most famous improv theater where comedic talent that every one of us knows comes out of, you know, people like Tina Fey, uh, people like Mike Myers. I mean, basically household names. So I thought you must have one of the coolest jobs in the world. And you must have some really fascinating stuff to share uh, based on this book and, and the people that you've probably been around for your life and your career. So on that note, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your journey, your story, your background, and how that's brought you to where you're at and what you're up to in the world today? Yeah, you bet. Happy to do it. And it's it's kind of funny. I, I, I start everything. I, when I talk about my role at Second City and who I am and how I came to be here, I always throw in some stock line to the effect that I'm probably the least funny guy in the company. Actually, I think that's changed. I'm probably the third least funny guy in the company, if you have to be you know, accurate. But because uh, um, uh, I didn't come up as an actor or uh, I'm not a comedian, I, I didn't come up through the stage. I'm a, a career marketing and advertising guy. And to the extent that I have an artistic bent to me, which I do, it's it's more on the music side. I was, um, I was you know, I, I played uh, music as a drummer, um, you know, avidly, uh, somewhat seriously, I was thinking about being a musician, uh, was thinking about uh, being a music major, uh, but wasn't very confident in my ability to, you know, make a living as a performer and didn't want to go into music, music education. So I uh, went to school at Wisconsin in Madison and um, made a decision to kind of, oh, what's kind of businessy and what's kind of artsy and how do I split the difference here and, you know, kind of scratch both itches. And I ended up going into the, um, uh, focusing on advertising. And I, Spent the first 10 years of my career in different ad agencies in Minneapolis and San Francisco and Chicago and um, had a great run. Um, and then uh, after after that, kind of decided that I wanted to be round out myself as a business person, wanted a, a bigger, broader base. So instead of just being an ad guy, I wanted to actually get into a bigger situation. I jumped to the other side of the desk and I was a marketing VP at Sears for five years. Sears was my client when I was at Ogilvy. Um, so I, I, you know, just kind of went to the other side, literally of the desk and became my client and did that for a good run. And then like everyone in 1999, uh, decided to, uh, uh, chase the unicorn of, uh, the, the tech in the dot-com world and, uh, made my jump, uh, and became a VP of strategic marketing at 3Com, uh, for a tumultuous 18 months during the, uh, the peak and cratering of the first dot-com bubble. And so that, that was my background has precisely nothing to do with comedy or <laughs> improvisation or anything. But um, it was actually fortuitous that I did all that because I understand really well the world that we, we serve now. So this is I head up a company called Second City Works, which is the business to business arm of the Second City. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we are busy helping clients communicate, create and collaborate better in the business world. And. Um, you know, as, like I say, I was a marketing guy who came here through a series of happy accidents, but I never really realized how relevant all this stuff was into the business world until I got here. Hmm. So there's a, a ton of really interesting stuff here, but you know, one of the things that I, I want to actually dig back into is, you know, the period before you decided to go and, uh, you know, pursue music, I mean, younger years that kind of led up to, uh, that as sort of the starting point for all of this, you know, early childhood influences and things like that. Yeah, I was a sports kid. I grew up in a Rust Belt town, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, had a great upbringing, fantastic parents who are still around doing really well. Um, my dad was an electrician. My mom was a nurse. 
Um, what I can tell you about that place and that time and that upbringing was um, uh, it truly valued work and tru truly valued showing up and being accountable. Um, <laughs> they never missed a day, you know, and so things like that were formative. Um, it was also the kind of situation where I, uh, I had really creative friends. Um, and so, you know, write on the high school newspaper and would, you know, bury hidden things in the line, in, in the articles <laughs> that would, you know, get me in trouble and that sort of stuff. So I, I, had, I had a little of that wise ass kind of thing going on in the middle of it all. But, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, I wasn't a great student. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I would never want my, my current uh, college and high school kids to see what I actually did because it wasn't pretty. But that was, you know, that was a little bit about my background. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this, you know, as somebody who spent a lot of time, uh, you know, as a musician being exposed to performance, how, how did music and performance, uh, influence and shape, you know, the later parts of your career, you know, working in advertising, working as a VP of marketing at Sears and, and working at 3Com. I mean, what was the role and influence that music has played in everything, uh, that you, you've experienced in your life? Well, finding other ways to connect with an audience, um, that it's not always a purely rational thing, you know, that what, what is music? Sometimes it appeals to the rational side. Mostly it doesn't. And so I, I feel like, um, you know, in business, we often just we're so focused on what is the rational story we need to tell and how do we win people over on the merits? And uh, the fact is, people are persuaded by a lot of different things. And for me, music was just another way to connect with an audience. And that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is I, um, my musician friends just were, were just different. They were crazy. They were, they were out there. It's, I, I, I grew tolerant of a very different, uh, wide ranging group of people. I appreciated people on a different level. So it wasn't, you know, I, had, I, I was a sports kid for a while then I blew up my knee and then I got, then I got into music. So I had jock friends and I had music friends, but the music friends, you know, uh, really, took me into new places and they had different experiences and different things to say. So, you know, for me, it was about being tolerant and open to a wide range of thinking and a wide range of, you know, experiencing the world. Mm -hmm. And also just understanding that there's a lot of different ways to connect with people and, um, beyond just like a purely rational A plus B equals C kind of thing. Mm. So, you know, that actually raises a question for me in terms of, uh, how we find sort of the mediums and, and places uh, or, or methods in which to communicate with people uh, kind of like music was for you. Like, how do you, you know, how do you discover that kind of a thread in your own life? Wow. That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think I had some of it because I, there's music in my family. You know, there's a lot of people who are fantastic players and in the community I lived in, I was just telling someone else this uh, unrelated conversation earlier today. I grew up, uh, like I said, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and you would never expect this um, humble blue-collar town to have an ex such an extraordinary commitment to music and the arts. And I don't know what, what it was in the water in Kenosha, <laughs> but phenomenal um, music programs in the middle school and high school levels uh, produced. There were you know, just tons of professional musicians that came out of that program, studio drummers, lots of them, not just one, mm -hmm. but I mean – Many, many. So sometimes it's just the environment. And for me, that environment was um, it wasn't you weren't a dork because you were in the high school band. You weren't, you know, weird because you played in the jazz ensemble. It was celebrated because they were legit and they were good. And so it was this kind of harmony between the traditional things you like in, in, in high school, like that the things that get celebrated like sports with just as really phenomenal music program. Mm. Well, having grown up as a, a band geek in high school and uh, having been exposed to high, you know really amazing music programs in Texas, I can definitely relate. Yeah, absolutely. And then later on, I went. I, I was a drum corps kid too. I went. I went into that and went on the road and you know at a young age learned. And I was talking to my my youngest boy about this this over the weekend that that whole world is exactly the opposite of improvisation. That whole world is around precision. That whole world is around refining a show you know, a gazillion times in trying to scrub every flaw out of it. And there's a, there's a certain merit to that too, the, the discipline to get up and make something great and make something more perfect. Right. So improv's messy. Improv's not about perfection. It's about, you know, a lot of other things, but having that earlier experience, I don't know. I, I just, I feel that 
it's uh, it's just interesting to that there is still it's it's still cool to to refine. It's still cool to care about excellence. It's still cool to work your butt off to make something just a little bit better. And I, I got all that through that experience. Hmm. So uh, let's do this. Um, I, I want to talk about you know both the, uh, your time at Ogilvy and your time at Sears as as in addition to your time at 3Com. You know one of the things you said earlier is that you know what you do now uh, at Second City is you teach people to basically communicate, create, and collaborate more effectively. And we'll get into all of that in improv. Uh, mm-hmm. as we as we get you know further down the road in the interview but one of the things I like to talk about is kind of the lessons that you brought uh, in all those three disciplines from the previous uh, you know careers that you've had prior to what you're doing now mm-hmm. uh, okay so um, you know I, as far as uh, creative you know when you grow up in an ad agency there's there's probably more defined roles. You know, you're an account guy, you're a writer, you're an art director, you're in media, at least back in the day when I was working business um, in the 80s and 90s uh, in that part of my career. Um, and I think what I learned about that was, you know, it's it's great to understand how the parts add up to a whole, but it's also not so important. If you've got a good creative idea and you're wearing a different jersey or you're in a different department, it shouldn't really matter. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that I, I, I really like and respect here is this is a place where, you know, ideas come from a lot of different places. Creativity comes from a lot of different places. And it's it's less important about what your official role is or your, your job title. It's more what, about what you can bring. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of picked that up um, in, in that area. And uh, as far as, uh, you know, I don't know. I think the other thing I learned is that there's a lot of dysfunction in business and a lot of um, editing that goes on and a lot of people kind of going about 85% because they've learned that it doesn't pay to risk fully and it doesn't pay to put themselves out there behind a position um, too much. And when I got here, uh, I, I, you know, you, you can't improvise that way. You have to be more committed to whatever you're doing in the moment. You have to be committed to the senior and you have to be committed to your ensemble mates and watching people commit in the face of possible and sometimes likely failure was amazing because it ran counter to my experience in the business world where commitment was conditional. Well, I'll, I'll get behind this if I have all the facts on my side or what are the metrics behind this and how do I know if this is going to work and how do I, you know, basically there's, it's a place most of the business world operates in kind of a, a space of hedging mm-hmm. and, and minimizing variables and risk. I get it. And it's not like we, we, we do make decisions that way here as well in the running of the business. So I'm not denigrating that, but I'm, what I'm saying is I think it's too far on the other end of the spectrum. And I think that world what, can learn a lot from this world. And that's kind of been um, what I focused on for 13 years here at Second City. Okay, so I think we've more or less hit the gold, which is what what I wanted to spend most of our time talking about. Um, you know, here's here's something really interesting. You know, you talked about uh, people. You know, don't see much of a payoff from committing to a, making a risk fully. So there's two things I've been thinking about a lot lately is, you know, how we lose that capacity for risk and how we lose our curiosity as we grow up, uh, just because we become so much more self aware. And of course, uh, the question really is, uh, how do you get it back and how do you then start to develop a higher tolerance for commitment to risk? Does that make sense? Uh, say a little bit more about that. I want to make sure I, I yeah. so, understand. I guess, you know, you talked about, you know, in the business world, people have gotten to this point of, you know, analysis almost where they say, you know what, I am not going to risk fully because it doesn't pay off. And my question is why we lose that commitment to risking fully uh, as we sort of grow up and, and go through the tra- trajectory of our careers? And then how do we get it back? And then how do you increase the tolerance for taking bigger and bigger risks? Got it. Um, well, so I don't, this is not me speaking for Second City here. This is just me responding to your question. I, I have a feeling and I have a real passion around this as it relates to how we educate our kids. And I think that is a big contributing factor. Sure. Uh, they're, they're basically building a resume from the time they're really young. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, 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 you know, we've set up this thing that, you know, you have to get into a certain kind of university in order to get into a certain kind of university, you have to check these boxes and in order to check these boxes, you have to do these things. And kids aren't even, there's no spontaneity. We, we program them to build a resume and, 
they're not doing things necessarily out of authentic interest and passion first. Sometimes they're doing it because they think it's going to look good down the road to somebody. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we teach them to hedge from the very beginning. And um, some of them find out later on, that, you know, what, what does it mean to win <laughs> in that situation? So congratulations, you. And I, I, maybe you're very happy ending up in the place you've ended up. But for me, that was never really the formula for success. It was more around, um, you know, trying to understand what really moved me and, um, you know, being comfortable zigging when others are zagging. And, you know, if, if I wasn't seeing what I needed or experienced what I needed in a job to find something that worked better, but not to do things just because, you know, again, the path was supposed, no one told me that I was going to end up at a comedy theater. I, <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's a life is a series of happy accidents if you want to look at it that way. And I can look back and say I had a ricochet resume, uh-huh. but at the same at the same time, I can tell you that there's a connective thread and a through line to that whole thing. And it's not an accident. It's you know it's building on you know threads and and connecting connecting things and ending up in this place. But to answer your question, I, I think we as parents, high achiever, affluent. Um, and, and I would say our society overall compared to the rest of the world is coming from that place where, um, I think we're chasing the wrong stuff and conditioning kids to do the hedge from the beginning. Mm. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's really interesting. Uh, it, it's funny because I, I think absolutely as adults, we lose that. And I think we, the problem is that we're not put in situations, like you said, where we have an opportunity even uh, by the time we've become adults and we're, you know, in jobs that basically have taught us that, hey, if you take risk, there's a potential to be fired. Yeah, there was a um, uh, there's a piece. I can't remember the writer, but I remember the line. It's sticking. You know, I'll paraphrase. But it was an Atlantic article from years ago uh, talking about this challenge and uh, that we're raising a generation of kids that, you know, they're, they're taught to be good. But can they ever be great? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know. It's not about just understanding, okay, tell me, tell me the rules of the game and I'm going to master the rules of the game. And if I learn how to master the rules of the game and, and play it diligently, I'll have success. The problem is that the rules change. The world throws you, you know, all sorts of unexpected things. And I think that's why I love what we're doing here because it's not about showing you. It, it's about teaching you adaptive skills and helping you to become an agile learner mm-hmm. because we can't possibly know what's around the next three corners. Um, and it's a fool's errand to think we can. Okay. So I think this is, I have one more question and then I want to really get into to the work that you guys are doing at Second City and, and why I feel it was so relevant to, to everything that we're doing in the world today. You know, one of the mm-hmm. things that you said is, uh, you know, you first said it's a series of happy accidents, but looking back, it's not, you kind of could connect the threads and the through line. In fact, that was going to be one of my questions is what would you say is the, th- has been the through line to your career and how do people find theirs? And is it only something as Steve Jobs says that we can find looking back and not forward? It may be a little of that maybe looking back, um, the um, I'd say a through line is um, um, humor as a way to get to the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, uh, you know, at Ogilvy we had a tradition every year at the Christmas party, the holiday party, we would do the Hanky Awards, named after a, you know, uh, an executive there, a guy named Hank Bernard, and basically it was a you know an award for career endangering stunts and, and all sorts of silliness that happened during the year. So it was. It was kind of in the same way getting at what we do sometimes with Second City, where you use comedy to hold a mirror up to an organization and get them to think differently about, you know, make it safe to fail, make mm-hmm. it safe to call up BS that typifies much of our of our life. Um, so that, that's a connective thread, using comedy to kind of get to the truth. Um, another is just um, the power about and to change, um, you know, organizations and institutions. It's you know, I think what, I, what I'm sometimes struck by in this in the life I have now where we do a lot of work in professional development, corporate education, mm-hmm. is how similar it is to advertising and marketing my whole life. Um, in that, you know, ultimately both things are about cha- changing behaviors. And before you can change anyone's behaviors, you have to change attitudes. And before you change attitudes, you have to get people to pay attention. And so whether you're trying to teach people how to 
a new uh, sales technique or trying to get them to buy a Snickers bar, um, you know, it's, it's the same thing. So that's a through line or a connective thread too about winning over audiences and finding ways to compel people to do things differently. Hmm. All right. So that makes a perfect setup to, to talk about what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about, which is sort of this framework for improvisation and, and how it applies to, you know, the work that we're doing in our lives, how you guys have seen it applied in, in different organizations that you've worked with. Uh, and, and, you know, what are the implications of the work that you've done around this book uh, for people who are listening? I know that's a big question. So, yeah, I, I, well, I, I guess. Time will tell what, the, what all of the implications are, but I think at this stage, um, there's no question that there's legitimacy to this stuff. Um, we're, we're now doing hundreds of these engagements a year, half of them with Fortune 1000 companies in high-stakes situations. So people are realizing that the way, the conventional way of, you know, a lot of it's professional development, as I mentioned. So there's plenty of ways that you can learn skills and practice skills. I think people are really stunned and happy to see how relevant the improv is again here is around, hey, how do we help uh, businesses, individuals and teams um, communicate and collaborate more effectively? Mm-hmm. And so we've kind of unpacked it in, a, in, in this kind of improv toolkit idea that we think is really potent and relevant. So I, I don't know ultimately what, it, what what people will say the impact of it is, but I think there's you that there's a different way to communicate and collaborate with, with your coworkers. That I think at, at the highest level, what we're trying to do is bring use these methods to bring some humanity and authenticity into the business world because the absence of those things create can, creates conditions where you know people misbehave and dumb things happen and politics occur. And it's all sorts of those, those things that if you've worked in big companies, you understand uh, how it goes. And I think these techniques and this approach creates a space for a different kind of connection between coworkers and people. Mm -hmm. And if you do it right, Mondays don't have to suck. You can have a different relationship with your work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So can we get specifically into some of the techniques and, and the skills that you guys are talking about um, and, you know, get into this toolkit that you mentioned? Uh, really, you know, for people who are, are listening to apply it to, you know, whatever their work might be, whether they're artists, whether they're creators, whether they're entrepreneurs, uh, how do we take this and start to apply it to our lives on a practical sort of day-to-day basis? Yeah, great. So, I mean, to improvise, we found that uh, to be successful on stage, you have to have a lot of the same skills that you need to be successful in the business world. You need to be a supremely good listener um, that when people are creating something out of nothing in front of an audience um, uh, and expected to be interesting, all they have is what they give each other in terms of dialogue lines and things like that. And, And you have to be able to uh, listen and take that information and build on it. So listening, um, reading a room, uh, reacting, um, reacting well in an ensemble, not just going for yourself, but supporting the people around you. Those are all important things. Being resilient in the face of failure. I mean, our people, uh, the, the dirty little secret is a lot of improv fails, <laughs> you know, that, you know, our improv sets are free here for a reason. You pay to see the show um, but then we'll improvise afterwards. Uh, you can come and see that free because many times, you know, a scene won't work, but that's okay. Uh, Cause enough of them do that. It's been this unbelievable, you know, run that we've had for 55 years here. Mm-hmm. So again, just to recap things like how to listen, how to read a room, how to build trust on dispersed teams and create an ensemble environment, how to um, respond uh, in the face of failure, how to think quickly in a high change environment. Those are all the things that we know how to do. And that typifies life in the business world. Hmm. So let's talk about each of those, because um, each one of those, I think, is, is a particularly unique skill uh, that actually gives us a lot of power uh, and ability to communicate more effectively and create more effectively and collaborate more effectively, which really seems like the, the core of what you guys try to do. So let's talk about this. Uh, the, the first piece, which is listening. How do you cultivate a capacity for better listening? Yeah, that's that's a great one. And I think if you think about it, it, it's such an important thing, yet really no one practices that. <laughs> and I would say in general, people go to school, they might go to grad school, and then they go out in the business world, and then they think they have to, no one thinks about uh, sharpening the ax. No one thinks about continually building skills. So we don't practice listening unless, unless you're one of the rare mindful people who really try. But for the most part, it's on, hey, I'm going to go to a listening class. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen. But um, for us, uh, we talk about the difference between listening to understand and listening to respond. And so often in business, we're not really trying to understand what we're, you know, it's almost like a game show where we halfway through whatever a person's saying, we're already formulating a response. We have the right answer. We're just waiting to hit it. We put our hand on the buzzer with the right answer to either redirect the conversation or take control of the conversation or blunt what they're saying, as opposed to truly listening thoroughly all the way through for understanding and more of an empathetic approach that if you understand more where they're coming from, you might be able to do more and find more coherence or agreement in what's going on. And I, in our world, we, you know, we do a lot of listening skills uh, workshops with, with clients and as fundamental as it seems, you would, you would be surprised at how people, how few people feel really good about doing that. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I could see that. It's, it's funny because you're making me think about my interview process and the fact that I don't script questions beforehand. And it's largely because of, uh, you know, one, it forces me to make that deliberate commitment to listening to understand as opposed to listening to respond. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's, it's, it's going very well. You're doing a great job. No, it's, <laughs> yeah. A lot of, it's funny though. A lot of, uh, interviewers are lousy at it. You know, they, they have, they haven't heard a word of what the person said. They've got their own prescribed agenda and they, they're going to stick to it. And, and again, we just see too much of that happening. Um, not, it can happen in a sales situation. It can happen in a boss subordinate thing, like a coaching and feedback thing. It can happen in a conference room full of 12 people, all of whom have the need to be right. We've all been in that meeting and that doesn't go so well. So yeah, there's, um, it's, it's a critically important thing and yet you don't see it too much. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's talk about the idea of reading a room. This is something that I'm very personally fascinated by. I mean, how does somebody in the world of improv take the stage and learn how to read the room and what can we take away from that? Uh, when we are in a room. Well, I think it's about, um, uh, there's, um, you know, there, it's not just reading the room would be more like uh, in, a, in a stage situation, understanding what's going on with the actors around you, the cues that they're dropping, some verbal and nonverbal things that are that are being said. So you understand, oh, I'm I, uh, I'm her mother because of something she just said. Mm-hmm. And I'm in a parking lot because of what they just said. And, you know, there's no script. So you don't know any of those things. You don't know any of the backstory of a scene when you're creating it on the spot. So you have to become very observant to what's being dropped uh, and the cues that are being dropped. And I think, again, those are typically in business. We're not really thinking about those things. We're not paying as, as much attention as we need to, to nonverbal signals that we're getting. Mm-hmm. And with so much communication now happening over phones and, and the web and everything, we, we can lose some of those signals. And I think it's sometimes to the detriment of what's going on in terms of understanding. But there's a lot of things that our people do really to, uh, to, to be able to demonstrate an awareness of what's going on around them to really be, become adept at reading a room. So let's talk about the ensemble concept, because, I mean, I think that this is really, really interesting to me, especially in the online world where we're all kind of, you know, in our, you know, cubicles or or in our offices creating whatever we're creating. And, you know, I can tell you it's only through collaboration that I've been able to accomplish some of the more fascinating and more ambitious projects. So I feel like this is really, really important. And I really want to get an understanding of how this works in the world of improv and how we can bring it into our work. Yeah, it's everything in the work that we do. So in, in our form, we're not a stand-up comedy club, right? It's not a single comedian coming out, grabbing the mic and having at it. We are an ensemble. So there are you know, typically six actors on stage, sometimes a few more or less. Um, but it's essentially working um, with people to co-create something in the moment. Um, and you have to have each other's back on that stuff. There's, there's an axiom in our work, always take care of your partner or always take care of your scene partner. And it's about no matter what you offer, Srini, I'm going to, yes and, that's where the yes and comes in, I'm going to uh, affirm and build upon that. Uh, or uh, it's, it's how you create something out of nothing. And this whole notion of having each other's back and no matter what happens, I've got, I'm giving you unconditional support because no matter what I say, I know in turn, you're going to give me unconditional support and you won't leave me hanging either. And that trust is critical because, again, we don't have a script that provides the spine of a scene. They're making it up in front of you in real time. And you have to have some protocol and ensemble matters that you have to have that that base trust. And we draw that uh, that distinction um, in, in our work with corporate clients where um, we talk in terms of team sometimes, but we, we try to talk more in terms of ensemble. We think that team and teamwork and team building, those have become kind of eye roll words right. in the business world where we've all had those, those well-intentioned but oh-so-bad team building experiences that do precisely the opposite. And, and sometimes it feels like a, a, loaded, a loaded word anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, you've been, I mean, you, we've all, it's, it's not the land of trust falls. Well, my and so, was playing golf with a boss I hated, and I hated golf too. So... Yeah. So you really you had to suck it up and go. So that wasn't that wasn't much of a team. Um, and so for us, it's it's about um, really showing people um, 
the importance of ensemble. Uh, there's another axiom in the work that um, uh, one of our uh, true luminaries at Second City, a guy named Sheldon Patinkin, uh, who recently passed away, uh, talked about there's there's a phrase in the you're only as good as your weakest link. Um, he put a nice twist on it to really sum up what this is about in, in Second City and improvisation. Uh, it's you're only as good as your ability to compensate for the weakest link, because in improv, anyone at any point might be the weakest link in a scene. And everyone's always got to be willing to compensate. You have a responsibility um, to step in if someone is not getting it or someone is struggling. And if you can save a scene or if you can save something, you have the obligation to do it. And again, in, in the business world, sometimes that support is much more conditional. I might let you twist in the wind a little bit. I might let you, you know, <laughs> go out on that limb and fall. Um, because there might be something more in it for me to gain by holding back. In our world, that's that's anathema. You, you just can't you can't have it. And so, you know, this this whole idea of unconditional ensemble support is a big part of it. And it's it's how we've created successfully for 55 years. And it's interesting too. I'll say one other thing on it. Um, you know, at the top, uh, you were talking about some of the people who've come from our stages. And Second City is very well known for alums from you know the Tina Fey's and Stephen Colbert's and Steve Carell's to uh, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, uh, Martin Short, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And literally, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of high profile people have gone on to individual stardom and fame. And um, what's interesting about it is they learned everything that they learned in the context of an ensemble. So I love that model, too, that you can um, that you can commit to an ensemble and commit to those around you yet still achieve individual accolades and individual focus. And I think often in business, it's seen as a zero sum game. If, if I, if I, you know, go in for the team, I am risking my own individual stardom or my own individual opportunity. And, and I think our place is such a perfect example of how you can blend both. And if you really truly commit to the ensemble, the best ensemble players can go on to amazing things. So that I, I love this. This is brilliant. Um, one of those pieces of the interview that I'll probably go back and, and replay over and over again. Let me ask you this. How do you get people, uh, especially in the business world, like you said, where there isn't this level of trust uh, and there's sort of this conditional support, how do you make that shift from conditional support to unconditional support and I've got your back? Well, um, it, it does take practice. And, you know, when we do workshops, we're, we're not we're definitely not here to say we can come in for two hours and sprinkle some pixie dust and show you some exercises and it's all good. So we're um, you know, we respect our audience's intelligence enough to know that that's not the case. But um, I do think these ideas tend to be very sticky and these ideas um, because part of it's the way we teach it. When you're we're teaching these ideas, a listening skills exercise or, you know, a collaboration exercise or something like that, it is that it is on your feet doing it. So you're actually experiencing it as opposed to kind of a classroom lecture style thing where you're hearing someone talk about it. So some of it um, pound for pound. This method improv is a learning or a teaching methodology is pound for pound very strong. And I'd argue stronger than most things that I've seen in the business world because you're, it actually gives you a safe place to practice. And once you practice it, it tends to be easier to retain. So that's a piece of it. Another piece of it is um, the comedy side of what we do. And, you know, we will often go into a difficult situation. Maybe the company is going through a restructuring or they've merged with another company and it's not going so well, or they just had a product launch that didn't do what it needed to do, or there's a new HR policy that everyone hates and they're all pissed off or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. There's some, there's some thing, there's some block. And where we come in is often we'll use comedy, you know, we'll create some short, funny scene. If we're doing it live in a room at a, at a conference or a meeting, that's one way we might create video content that's uh, sent out to a larger organization, but it's using comedy to hold a mirror up to what people are truly thinking and saying in, in the company. Um, we say that things are funny when they're true. And so we use humor to reveal what's really true within an organization to call out the stuff that you're going to only talk about at the, um, at the bar later on that night. Mm -hmm. So it's it, the comedy side 
is important because it creates space. It wins over the skeptics, the, the people in the back of the room with their arms crossed saying, I don't need any of this soft, squishy stuff. I, you know, this is a bunch of crap and we'll be on to the next program du jour tomorrow. Right. You use, you use and cause I've been that guy, you know, I get it. Mm-hmm. And you know, people have, it's a conditioned response and I totally understand it. So often we'll come in and be asked to pop the tension bubble around something that's thorny or difficult. And so we use humor to do that. And once we've done that, and then the people in the back of the room with their arms crossed say, okay, well, you know what, maybe it won't change, but they're taking, they're at least being honest about what's broken. So I'm going to hear it a little differently than I did in the past. So for us, it's pop the tension bubble and then use improv to build the skills that, um, that we've identified with the funny. It's kind of this really interesting one-two punch that if we'd only be funny and just do comedic drive-bys without never imparting any skills to improve the situation, that would be irresponsible. And then simultaneously, or I guess conversely, I'd say, if we only were about this positive, affirmative improv stuff without acknowledging you know, the real tough truth that happens in many big organizations, that too doesn't work. But the, the combo platter of both has been very potent for us. Hmm. So let, let's let's uh, talk about one last piece of this, which is uh, you know resilience in the face of failure. Which I, in the context of improv, I think has got to be really fascinating because you're not only being forced to be resilient in the face of failure, you're being forced to be resilient in front of an audience in the face of failure. Um, Absolutely. So yeah. how do how does that how does that work? I mean, what what can we take away from that? How can we cultivate that capacity to be to be resilient in the face of failure when we're in front of an audience? Because I mean, you and I effectively are having a conversation right now where we're, you know, we face the potential of failing in front of an audience and people being bored. Absolutely. Which I hope is not happening, but, you know. Good God. Yeah, absolutely. So. No, I, I think you're right. And so I think, you know, for, again, I, I can just harken back to what we talk about is um, uh, we accept that. We accept that a lot of it is going to fail, but it's, it's, um, some of it is volume and some of it's just a, a commitment to move forward to the next great thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you get there, but there's a few different ways that we fail. And we talked a little bit about this in the book. We, we fail in public. We fail fast. Uh, we fail, um, in partnership with our ensemble mates. So you're not in it alone. It's not like I have to bear the brunt of it because everyone's got your back, that sort of thing. And again, it's, it's how you fail too. That matters as much as whether you fail. Mm-hmm. And so, for us, it's, it loses its sting. I mean, it's, it's such an avoided thing. Um, it's this, it, 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 it takes, it, it gets power on us and it has power that is probably more than it should have in, in business. And, and for us, it just, we, we do it more. We accept that it's going to happen and we do it frequently enough where it loses a little bit of its sting. And, and part of it is kind of the only thing you have to fear is fear itself sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And because we're not in that mode, um, it doesn't paralyze us. Hmm. I love that. I mean, it seems like basically you're improvising in the face of failure. Uh, when something doesn't go according to plan, you just commit, you know, you, you move on without looking back. You do. And, and I think what's your choice. <laughs> and I always, I, I got a kick out of this again and, and, um, uh, uh, permit the digression, but I think you're the kind of guy who appreciates this. <laughs> the, um, you know, back in when I was in big companies, and I think this was is certainly true where I was, but I think it's true in, in many of the places I work where um, there's just not candor in the face of failure. This um, uh, failure is not an option. Well, you know what? It, it actually is an option and it's probably a likely outcome in many of the condi- circumstances that we're going into. If you're, if you're creating a new business or inventing a new product or creating a new process or procedure, there's going to be a lot of glitches and failures along the way. Um, and to pretend that that's not so creates a cynicism in the organization that's that's even worse than the original failure because it creates conditions where people whitewash it and they pretend that it's not there. And everyone knows that they're pretending about it. And that fundamental dishonesty creates a lack of engagement. So people just kind of they learn that it's not worth their effort or the risk to be fully candid. And right. so they hold back. And to me, that's the greatest thing that comes out of failure is when you create conditions where it's not safe to fail or not safe to talk about imperfection and messiness, then you create a condition where people are fundamentally dishonest because most of our days are messy. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think about all the stuff that we do every day in our jobs, it's messy. And if you can't acknowledge that fundamental truth, then you know, you've know you created a dishonest environment. And that's way more dangerous than the failure you're trying to avoid in the first place. Brilliant. So basically, if we're all full of shit, we're going to be disengaged. <laughs> yeah, it's true because people learn to hold back. They go, okay, then it feels like propaganda. Uh-huh. Then it feels, uh-huh. you know, like, you know, next you're going to... It's like having the, the dictator's picture up on the wall in the atrium of the company saying, no, you, you, that's not what, I mean, we know that this is bullshit. We know that that didn't work. And we know, why are we saying that it did? You know, it's just, it's just, that's way more harmful to me in my experience, um, you know, than, than any, any failures that come along the way. Hmm. So yeah, one, there's a, sorry, one, one quick aside, there's a guy, um, uh, another Atlantic article. It's like I, you'd think it's the only thing I read. Uh, he's a writer named William Longavisha that I really liked. He wrote about uh, when I was at Sears and I was watching how our company reacted to big challenges. Anytime there was a, a it usually responded with new process, a new procedure. And so we had tons of procedures in the company, all well-intentioned and all trying to solve the problem, the last problem that we had. The problem is that it gets so uh, the, the process becomes so thick and unknowable that people opt out of the system. And this writer for Atlantica, who was writing a piece about uh, a plane that went down in, in 1997 in the Florida Everglades, and it wasn't uh, his, his point of view on it was that it it was less around um, the fact that there weren't procedures in place to deal with the root cause of the crash. There were. It was because the the, the whole thing had become so complex that people stopped paying attention to what the rules and regs were. They opted out of the system, creating the conditions for a catastrophic failure. And I think that's how people, that's the the worst possible consequence when it comes to a lack of candor in business. Because if you pretend that things, bad things don't happen, or if you pretend that there isn't messiness, you create a dishonesty where people don't tell the truth. And when they don't tell the truth, small problems turn into big problems. And end of soapbox. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you one last question around this piece on resilience and failure, and it's only only through you know some of the personal experiences that I've had with failing at something very publicly. Uh, you know, we mentioned sort of not looking back and moving forward. How do we resist the temptation not to look back at the thing we failed at? Say that one more time. I just want to make sure I'm tracking with you, please. So you know, when we fail at something publicly or something is is somewhat humiliating, it's tempting to go look back at it and you know dwell on it or to to you know we can have trouble letting go of it. What I'm interested in is how do you resist that temptation? Yeah, um, I, I get it. And I've had that too. And, you know, the, the kind of the, the, you're driving in your car later on saying, why did I say that? And why did you, yeah, you, <laughs> yeah, you kind of relive the meeting and you shudder at yourself because you did something so asinine. I've done that many times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, first of all, I'll say, I don't know that I've perfected that art because uh-huh. I still, have, uh, we're all critics of, of ourselves. And I think any well-meaning person will, will, will look back at that. So and, and what we try to do is, is about forward progress. It's about, it's, you know, when, when you're improvising, you really have no time to worry about what happened five minutes ago because you have to worry about the next thing that you're going to create. And some of it for us is just, um, is just committing to the, to the next moment, committing to the next possibility and, that's not a perfect answer. And I understand you're still going to be tempted to look back on it, but I, I think you just have to understand and, and just take a point of view that anyone's going to have a certain amount of messiness and imperfection in your life. Mm-hmm. And if you can embrace that and understand that the gains are more important than the losses and, and look at it on <laughs> as a percentages game, I think that's a better way to do it. Mm. So, you know, before we start wrapping things up here, I, I want to ask you questions, uh, a question about some of the people that you mentioned, you know, some of these sort of iconic, timeless, uh, you know, talented people that have come out of Second City. I mean, what do you think it is that allows somebody to thrive at that level and succeed at that level? Uh, you know, I mean, how does somebody like a Tina Fey become a Tina Fey? You know, I'm sure that's a question every creative person, anybody who's had a career in the arts wonders. At least I do. Like, I wonder, how does Jon Stewart get so good at what he does that millions of people are, you know, in love with it? Well, um, and, and I'll say this uh, right at the top, too. Uh, unfortunately, my, it, for most of the folks you're talking about, um, they were here prior to my time. So I can't speak from personal experience, but I can speak from 
what I've heard others who were here at the time say about them. And so, you know, some of it's talent. They just brought great, great talent in, um, obviously, but they also evolved and developed and they, they committed to these ideas. Um, they committed to creating ensembles. And if you look at some of those shows that are on the air, whether it's a uh, uh, Colbert Report or 30 Rockers, those are fantastic ensemble casts and ensemble writing teams. And so many of those things have a foundation in improv um, in the sense that how they're going to create that content, those shows in the first place, those those people are all kind of steeped in the same rules and expectations. So I think some of it's just embracing these things. Some of it they bring just raw talent and some of it is just a commitment to honing their craft and, uh, and, and being ambitious and really striving. And they, they aren't lazy people. They're very driven, ambitious people who bring a lot of brains and passion to begin with and have committed to these ideas. And, um, it's, uh, it's no accident. And, and I think they'd also say too, that it's a gazillion reps, right? And they didn't, they're, these are not, everyone thinks that people are overnight successes, but these people were laboring at their craft in the Turco van making very little, you know, doing some college date in Tulsa, Oklahoma, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, they, they were in the trenches for years, uh, honing and refining their skills and their craft. Mm-hmm. And, um, they may burst on the scene for the public conscious, but know that they were working on their craft for a long time. Well, you know, I, I love that you brought up craft and it's something that comes up over and over again with a lot of the people that I talk to. I mean, pretty consistently, like the people who are the most poetic writers, the people who are very good at what they do or can come here and, and tell stories that blow my mind, every one of them, when you actually look at how long it's been, it's pretty mind blowing, like years yeah. of mastering a craft until, like you said, that, that we're publicly aware of who they are. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and the best artists are that way. So, Tom, uh, I, I want to close with uh, my final question, uh, which is how we wrap all our interviews here at the Unmistakable Creative. Uh, you know, based on, on you know the people that you've worked with over the years, uh, the artists that you've been exposed to, and, and you know from the world of improv, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, something unmistakable, um, probably a willing to risk risk it all for a moment, um, and and to not hedge that they're going to go for it. They're going to say that thing that had, that you wouldn't think you can't say that. And they do. And, and they pull it off. Um, the, the willingness to, to zig when everyone is zagging and, um, and be really comfortable doing that. Or if they're not comfortable, do it anyway. Yeah. Mo- many yeah. of us can talk about doing that, but those are the people who are truly separate from the rest of us, from us mortals. And, <laughs> And, and I really admire that the people who are really so committed that they're going to put it out there and, and really live it. Well, Tom, uh, you know, this has been really, really fascinating. Uh, you know, I just, like I said, I'm so intrigued by the stuff that you guys are doing. Uh, for, for those of you listening, I will link up all of the many articles that Tom mentioned, uh, as well as Tom's book. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your insights and your story with our listeners here at the unmistakable creative. Oh, it was a lot of fun. I appreciate your interest and it was great. Thank you. Awesome. And we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.